So the, the problem with my fetish is as follows. It's not the only thing that can arouse me. For which I consider myself fortunate, because there's definitely some people out there that they really need, you know, the object or else nothing happens. What I will say is it very much takes priority in my mind. And if I indulge it too much, I can start to lose interest in, you know, more vanilla kinds of activity. This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we ask a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This podcast contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, what is life like when you have an adult diaper fetish? Like many of our favorite episodes, this one was inspired by an email from a listener named Brian, who you heard at the top of the show. You know, the thing that was so interesting to me, Karina, is that I think a lot of us don't really understand the difference between what a fetish is and what is just a strong desire for something. Like, I, you know, I'm pretty into nipples, I would say. I like a pretty pair of nipples, but I'm not sure that that's a fetish. And our producer, Caitlin, has a thing for guys with beards. But I don't think you'd call that a fetish either. So when we got the email from Brian, where he legitimately was talking about basically how distressed he is because he's so into adult diapers and he can't tell anyone about that. And it's, you know, sort of interfering with his relationships or the way he thinks about his own life. That was really intriguing to me. You're right. It seemed pretty distinctly like a fetish or at least fetish in terms of what a fetish actually is. I think we think of fetishes as anything outside of, you know, something normative and regular when in reality a fetish is something you need in order to get off and it's so ingrained into your sexual desires. But we'll get back to our interview with Brian and discuss his specific fetish a little later in the show. First, we wanted to understand the fundamentals of a fetish. So we invited our favorite doctor, Dr. Jana Vangalova, to come into the studio and give us her take. What is a fetish? And where do you draw the line between something that you're really into and an actual fetish? That is a good question. Um, and, uh, well, there are two different ways that we talk about fetishes. One um, is when we actually use it to refer to something that's not just a fetish, that's paraphilia, so an uncommon or an unusual sexual interest. And then the and that's how usually people use it in sort of everyday speech. But um, fetish actually, in, sort of in, in psychology, uh, more specifically refers to a specific type of paraphilia, which is this intense kind of interest in um, a, an, an, an unusual sort of body part or a body part that's not necessarily directly related to the genitals um, that people f- sort of fixate on or a specific uh, material like, you know, latex or leather or, you know, lace, whatever, um, and or um, um, a bodily kind of fluid. And so it's so it's a very specific thing, but mm-hmm. often people will use it to refer to any kind of kink, mm-hmm. right? So uh, any kind of other BDSM, like sadism or masochism or domination submission or... Um, 
um, exhibitionism, voyeurism. So all of those things, even though they're not technically fetishes, people call them fetishes. I think it's interesting that fetishes are really just about we've incorporated everything into fetishes, Uh anything that sort of deviates from the norm. Actually, I don't think it's that surprising, but I think it's interesting. Right. And I also think it's interesting, though, that probably what was a fetish maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago is now just more in the mainstream. Like, especially, I know, like, in the gay community, like, a golden shower, like, pissing Mm -hmm. on someone. I think 20 or 30 years ago, that was so unheard of, maybe not in the gay community, but in in mainstream. (laughs) And I think golden shower is less shocking now to people. And now the fetishes that shock people, you know, are are a lot more shocking. Like, you and I, the way that we started this podcast was we, there was an article in New York Magazine about bloodhounds. So people who like to have sex with women who are menstruating mm. and like to have oral sex with women who are menstruating, right. all these things. And we just thought that was so interesting. So, you know, I think that the way that we define fetish is getting more and more sort of extreme, for lack of a better word. Maybe, although something like uh, golden showers is still pretty fetishistic, you know, by by all definitions. But now back to your other question of, you know, where you draw the line, right? So a lot of us have certain um, interests or, you know, curiosities or, uh, you know, we might want to every now and then incorporate some of these unusual kinds of or, or less common sexual practices. Uh, when it crosses the line from being sort of a, an interest and curiosity to being a, a, a fetish is when it becomes more of a primary preference and when it becomes something that you kind of need in order to get aroused or stay aroused or complete sort of your 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 sexual uh, arousal cycle. So in order to come, you need that particular thing. Um, or when that is, you know, maybe you can still, you know, have a satisfying sexual experience without it, but having it just makes it so much better. So that's interesting because then it means fetish isn't this menu of these are my fetishes. It really is something that's central sort of de facto to your sexual experience, which I think I probably wouldn't have thought of in my own definition. Sure. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, in in colloquial use, we kind of use it to refer to any kinky interest or, or, um, yeah, curiosity Mm -hmm. or desire or something that we may every now and then decide to do or try or play with uh, in the right circumstances with the right partners. You know, we kind of um, a a lot of us have those circumstantial kinds of um, desires and and willingness to do certain things. But um, and we all call those fetishes, but they're not really fetishes. Mm -hmm. They're more like little kinks, little, you know. So it seems like a kink is something that you're interested in, something that maybe turns you on. Um, something you want to explore, but a fetish is something that you have to have or at least feel like you have to have in order to get off. Right. And and like we were saying earlier, so I think with Brian, it's more of a fetish, but then it makes me wonder, where do fetishes come from? And it's the whole like nature versus nurture thing. You know, are we born with these things inside of us that are just waiting to get out or does something happen to us and then all of a sudden we have this fetish? So... We wanted to find out more about the actual origin of fetishes. Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. Right. <laughs> we're still, we're actually just beginning to do the research that might answer some of those questions. So we don't have very, very good answers to that question, but we do have some. And um, so, especially for the for that narrow definition of fetishes, you know, when someone is into a specific material, a specific body part, or a specific object, uh, sort of inanimate object not made for sex, so those are the kind of the three, and bodily secretions, uh, those are the three or four kind of 
things that go into the narrow definition of fetish. So for those, it seems like uh, learning plays an important role in many cases, maybe not all, but in many cases, some sort of conditioning. So, for example, um, the, the, the sort of the classical conditioning with the Pavlov's dog kind of thing. So, uh, you know, if, if say, um, you know, there, there was some sort of a, a non-sexual um, stimulus, a non-sexual thing that was always present or often present when you were masturbating or when you got an orgasm as a kid. So there was, I don't know, your, uh, an unusual um, material that the sheets were made of or you're always masturbating, I don't know, hidden in the closet and the clo- you know, right next to your, your grandma's um, leather jacket or you know, something like that. And simply because that leather jacket was always there when you had the sexual, sexually pleasant experience, the two of them kind of got paired together. In, in our in our brain, uh, the other way is if you got sort of the the operant conditioning, the other type of learning where um, y- you know that was kind of a the reward of having an orgasm was always paired with after that came came some some reward that had to do with these um, objects or materials or something like that. So that kind of got uh, paired up in our in our brains as you know this is something that we want because that's the it comes as a reward. Can you give us an example of the reward scenario? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, you can think of, um, for example, you masturbated and your parents caught you masturbating and then they spanked you. And it's it was, you were still kind of aroused and, you know, you were still feeling that pleasurable uh, sensation of the orgasm and the the pain kind of came after that, but you ended up pairing the pain with the pleasure. So, so a lot of the people with some, some fetishes or uh, some um, sadomasochistic um, desires, interests, will remember scenarios like this, like moments like this in their past, uh, in their childhood. That that kind of uh, was like, oh, that first time, and ever since then, you know, I've had this. Not everyone, for sure. But we also have experiments to, um, to suggest that you can certainly create these kinds of f- fetishes in people. So there was an old experiment back in the 60s where they got a bunch of men and, who didn't have a boot fetish, and they created a boot fetish in them by pairing a, a picture of boots, and a pic- which you know, in and of itself was not uh, sexually arousing, but they paired it up every time with a photo of a really sexy lady. And then after a number of those pairings, um, they just showed them the boots and they had an erection. Hmm. Coming up on HuffPost Love and Sex, we'll hear more from Brian and Dr. Jana will weigh in on his fetish and what, if anything, he should be doing about it. If you haven't had time to find Love and Sex on iTunes, now's the perfect opportunity. Every time we get a new subscriber rating and review, it boosts our rank in the iTunes store, which helps us spread sex positivity and education. So I guess just to start, tell us exactly what your fetish is, um, as specifically as you can. So my fetish is adult diapers. Um, It's... How do I follow that up? Um... (laughs) 
I mean, I, I, what, I mean, what is it about uh, adult diapers? Is it wearing them? Is it other people wearing them? Uh, so here, here's the weird thing. Me wearing them and somebody else wearing them are equally appealing to okay. me. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, it, it's like, do I want beer or wine today? Okay. You know, it's kind of like whatever mood I'm in. Got it. And is it is it about the physical sensation of them? Is it about the way they look? Is it about, does it have something to do with being a baby so uh, i don't know exactly what it is i mean i can tell you the feeling that i associate with them more than anything else is i guess humiliation uh-huh. and you know humiliation as an erotic thing is not new no but other forms of humiliation don't do it for me in the same way so uh, there's sort of like an x factor here that i couldn't tell you exactly where it comes from and you know that's almost one of the reasons why i was you know wanted to come forward and talk about doing a podcast about fetishes because this whole thing is largely a mystery mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. when did it first start honestly uh, i could trace it back as far as early childhood um when i was like five or six years old i had this weird fascination with them and it didn't become sexual until i would say maybe about 11 or 12. Uh, at that point in my life, I would start to notice that I would become aroused when I was thinking about them. And a long period of denial followed, where I sort of tried to convince myself that there wasn't any connection here. And I would say a little later into my teens, maybe around, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, you know, I, I started accidentally stumbling across porn sites that that catered to this particular kink right and there's a lot of them out there can you can you describe one of those porn sites what what's the kind of porn that interests you involving adult diapers so there's a lot that will use them almost as a form of punishment you can almost think of it as like kind of a bdsm role play where you know you could you know, you could tie up a partner and put a diaper on them and then they would feel sort of humiliated and mortified. And that that is actually an entire genre, believe it or not. Um, and that tended to be the sort of stuff that would make me feel the most excited. Um, I also did. A, there's also a lot of like erotic fiction. You, know, you, you, you can put erotic in quotes if you want to, because it's not erotic for a lot of people. But, um, you know, people would sort of spell out these elaborate role play scenarios and then sort of, you know, put them online. And that was mostly what I did. You know, I didn't actually go out and and buy a pack of diapers and do stuff with them very often. You know, for I mean, a lot of it was just like shyness or I didn't want to do it by myself or I felt weird or like, you know, this isn't right. Right. For you, is it about. The, the diaper with a partner, though? Or would you ever, you know, buy buy a pack of diapers and masturbate wearing them? I tried it, and it didn't do much for me. So, I mean, there, I, I, I do kind of feel like there's kind of like a role-play scenario that has to accompany it in order for it to be effective. Got it. But I also need the physical object. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Is it... Is it for you also, and is there anything involving role play as a baby or is it less about, um, more about the humiliation and less about actually being a baby? So that's a good question because for a lot of other people, you know, 
being a baby is a big part of it. And I would say that that's not so much the case for me. In a way, it's kind of the cognitive dissonance between like knowing I'm an adult, but I've got this thing on. And, you know, isn't that weird? Uh, that's where a lot of the excitement comes from, I guess, sort of that contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for you, is uh, urinating or defecating in the diaper part of the erotic appeal, too? So definitely not number two. Okay. That, that's that's probably a turn off for me. I mean, number one, I'd want to say that I'd be OK with. Uh-huh. But it's not really the point. Okay. It's more about the actual object itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you, can you, you talked a little bit about childhood and being, you know, an early child um, or being a young child and remembering being fascinated with them. Is there a particular memory that you have um, that you can point to and say, not that it started there, but, but that is really sort of memorable for you? I mean, you know, growing up, there would be times where like, you know, other kids might have accidents or, you know, maybe toilet training didn't work out and the kid has to go back to diapers for, you know, a a period of time. And uh, I can't remember a specific existence of that, but I remember sort of just generally that to my mind, that seemed like the ultimate humiliation, Mm -hmm. but there was something weirdly appealing about it. Right, right. Do you, have you told anyone about this? I have told two people. Okay. (laughs) If you were to plant a, if you were to make a chart of the number of people that I've told about this, you would see nothing for uh, about 18 years, then two short blips in college. And then today it's going to skyrocket into the thousands. Right, right. Were these people that you were friends with or family members? I told one romantic partner um, and, you know. This person was about as accepting as you could possibly imagine. Um, you know, obviously this person did not share the fetish. How did you, how did you tell them? It, I don't really remember how the conversation started. Was it like an out-of-body experience and you just sort of, it just happened? I don't remember how we got there. I remember we were lying in bed, chit-chatting about whatever, and... I guess I must have wanted to say something. I think maybe sort of inadvertently or subconsciously, I sort of steered the conversation in that direction. And, you know, my my, my partner was sort of poking and prodding and trying to get it out of me. And, um, you know, eventually I just came out and said it. Right. And, um, And what was the response? I mean, it... Like I said, I mean, as, as, as good as you could hope for, I mean, it was just sort of like, yeah, okay. But not, but it wasn't like, yeah, okay, I'm willing to try this with you or. That wasn't the case at first. And then it gradually it, it, it became the case. So, um, oh, so you did find you, the your partner did was, was, um, interested in, in trying this with you. Yes. I told, uh, you know. I told this person and they were willing to, you know, uh, at least open to the idea of, 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 of doing stuff with it. That must have been incredibly liberating and exciting for you. At the time, I guess it was, you know, uh, looking back on it, I don't know if I feel the same way. Really? You know, I, 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 I question about whether or not I question whether or not bringing it into the relationship was the right move. I guess that's what I would say. 
tell me, talk more about that. Why? So, so the, the, the problem with my fetish is as follows. It's not the only thing that can arouse me, for which I consider myself fortunate, because there's definitely some people out there that they really need you know, the object or else nothing happens. What I will say is it very much takes priority in my mind. And if I indulge it too much, I can start to lose interest in, you know, more vanilla kinds of activity. I really feel for Brian because I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have such an out-of-the-box fetish that was really integral to your sex life and either have to not tell your partner that for fear of them leaving or have to take that risk and realize that them walking away or being grossed out or just turning off completely were all very real possibilities. Yeah, it's like your two options are either you're totally unfulfilled sexually or you don't get a partner because you're afraid of having a partner or or you do tell them and maybe they leave you and can you imagine how painful that would be? It's like coming out of the closet, really. You have to reveal the secret about yourself, this very personal part of yourself to a person that you really care about and who, who also probably really cares about you, but you introduce this new sort of X factor to the situation and it can just change everything. That's got to be so terrifying and potentially really devastating. It's interesting to think about the other side of that coin, which is if somebody came out to you with this information. So we turned to Jana to figure out how that person should think about this or react or, or what to do in this type of situation. I would advise understanding and empathy. Um, so even if that's not something that you're into, just try to understand that this is a very real and very valid need uh, of your partner. And if you can't even sort of contemplate um, fathom, uh, you know, f- helping them them satisfied with you, then I mean, it's still a very real need. And so, you know, try to be open about how to how to answer that question. You know, is this something that, and it might be something that you you can deal with, and it's just it's a, it's an inc- incompatibility issue, right? You know, people choose to be or decide that they're incompatible for all sorts of reasons. So this could certainly be one of those. Um, but you know, at other times, other people may be may be open to you know having their partner satisfy that need um, with someone else. How how do we think about fetishes? Do we think of them as unhealthy? Do we think of them as a, something that should be cured? Um, are there healthy fetishes versus non-healthy fetishes? Or are they all... It, it makes me kind of think about like trying to like cure people of being gay at the same time. Like, you know, you could deprogram them. Is a fetish something that we should try and rid people of? Not unless it's harming other people. So um, in the, the latest edition of the, you know, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the, the sort of the Bible of psychiatric disorders and conditions that uh, is put, put together by the um, American Psychiatric Association. In the most recent edition, they made a very clear distinction between a paraphilia, uh, sort of that broad definition of a fetish, any kind of unusual sexual interest, and paraphilic disorder. And so um, you can have 
any kind of kink, fetish, interest, however strong it may be or however, you know, uh, salient to your or critical to your sexual identity may be. But as long as you're not distressed about it and or you're not harming any sort of non-consenting um, uh, you know, individuals uh, in the process of, um, you know, enjoying uh, your fetish or your paraphilia, then it's not a disorder. And so um, unless one of those two um, conditions are, are satisfied, then you're fine. Now, the distress part goes back to, you know, homosexuals back in the day mm-hmm. were very distressed about their mm-hmm. homosexuality because they weren't being accepted by society. So you may find people who are distressed about their fetish purely because they live in a culture that, you know, is not accepting and because they can't find a partner uh, with whom to live out those desires or have a partner who's very anti, right. you know, those desires. And so they may be distressed simply because of that. That's interesting because we actually had a, a listener write in. That's why we're doing this show because his fetish is adult diapers. Mm. Um, and he lives in the Midwest and uh, he he can't tell anyone about it. Uh, he's in a relationship with a woman and he can't tell her about it. And he seems very distressed by it. Mm. And it is the kind of thing where I feel like, you know, in an ideal world, he would be able to have that and have people accept it or find a partner who would accept him. But um, that's not where we're at. Not really, um, unfortunately. I mean, he could find other ways to satisfy that need by, you know, going to a professional dominatrix, for example, or trying to find a relationship. There's also the fact that um, most of the... the, um, the, most of people with these very strong fetishes are men. Mm. And, you know, if they're heterosexual men, then, you know, the likelihood of finding a partner who shares their fetish is kind of, you know, not very high. Uh, because especially with some fetishes, the the ratio of how many men to women are into that fetish is like 95 to 1. Mm. So of all the people with that fetish, 95% uh, percent will be men and maybe 5% will be something like 95 to mm-hmm. um yeah to five wow. so there's that now he could still find a partner who's more accepting of that even if she isn't into it herself but you know she could be understanding of this and maybe um maybe she would be okay with with having him visit a professional dominatrix to satisfy that need without having to lie and cheat about it mm-hmm. and i think that would probably be the ideal scenario I think it's interesting because in a lot of ways we are creating a world where people can be open and honest, but I simultaneously feel like we're just pulling more and more things into this bubble of what's normative and acceptable instead of just bursting that bubble. Like we're saying, okay, now it's now it's okay to be gay or now it's okay to, you know, maybe like BDSM or like being spanked or some of these other things that 20 or 30 years ago were just no-goes for majority of the population. And now majority of the population is actually somewhat understanding or okay with it but it's just continuing to say these this is the list of things that are okay versus this is the list outside of that that don't do wrong bad not okay exactly instead of just sort of being open to the idea that anything could be okay depending on the context and consenting to it and like you said really just exploding our ideas around what sex and sexuality is Well, and clearly it's something we need to do because, as we heard from Brian, he still hasn't talked to his current partner about it. Right. No, I, I, I haven't told anybody since. Okay. Is how how does that 
affect your life, your um, sex life, but your life day to day? I mean, I guess it's all sort of, it doesn't really have an external impact on my life, right? Because this is all in my mind. It's all privately happening up here in my head. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel a little bit guilty, I guess, in that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm harboring a secret or, um, uh, you know, am I being dishonest or not? you know, meeting obligations by being more forthcoming about it. But at the same time, there's a sense in which, you know, what, what, what good would come out of telling somebody? Right. Know, that's, that's well, kind of how I feel. I feel like maybe the good could be that you could have a more satisfying sexual relationship. That would, that would certainly be the ideal. Um, and I guess I just haven't, felt confident enough since that first time that anybody would really be accepting of this. So what is your biggest fear if people found out about this? That people would stop being your friend? Or, or you know, would end the relationship? That's a really good question. Because, I mean, you know, there's a sense in which if they're really my friends, this wouldn't be a deal breaker for them, right? right. Um, I don't think anybody going to say, I'm never going to talk to you again. I, I don't expect it to be that quite dramatic, but what I might see happen is, you know, from that point on, maybe they start acting a little bit different around me, right? Maybe when they see me, they can't quite ignore that or unknow it. And, you know, they might not be as comfortable around me as they were before. I mean, I guess concretely that's what i'm really afraid of but what do you want to say to the people who are listening who don't have fetishes who've never thought about having a fetish who maybe are thinking oh that's weird what do you want those people to know yeah i've, I've, I've been waiting for this part um <laughs> i mean the number one thing i want people to understand is this is not something that i chose or wanted this is something that happened to me and whether or not it's something that I would like to change, and at a lot of times I did wish that I could get rid of it, it's not in my capacity to alter this about my mind. I mean, it, after years of, of, of struggling with it and telling people and not telling people, I mean, it, whatever I do, it's there to stay. And I know how it probably makes you feel when you hear about it. I mean, I know how weird or gross or bizarre it seems. Um, and, you know, all I can say is that that's just something that's beyond my control. I, I think that's the number one thing that I want people to know. So, Karina, what are your thoughts after everything we've heard? The most interesting part of this episode to me is Brian himself. When we first got this email... I have to admit, I was a little, uh, you know, adult diapers. This is so strange. And then we talked to him, and I swear to God, he could be my boss. Like, he could be my next-door neighbor. Mm -hmm. He could be my brother. He could be my uncle. His The way that he was talking about it and just sort of the way how articulate he was. And, I mean, I hate this word, but it's like he sounded so normal. Mm -hmm. And I think that is probably the biggest takeaway and growing point for me is that so many of these people are out there with fetishes that might really not do anything for me, but it 
they're amongst us. You know, they're not like hiding in the corners of some weird sex store, you know, and like mm-hmm. downtown. They're just living their lives. Yeah. But I think a lot of them are hurting. I think a lot of them aren't able, like Brian, to actually talk about it except for to go on a podcast and be anonymous, you know, and I, I hopefully that's a release for him. And it sounded like he actually worked through some of his stuff by talking to us. But, you know, a couple years ago, I met this guy. He was in his 50s. He called himself the foot fetish king of Hollywood, Florida. Amazing. And he gave me a foot massage. And actually, that was how he got off. Like, he didn't need oral sex. He didn't. Need, he just wanted feet. Um, but the most interesting thing about him, he was a really sweet guy. And he told me that growing up, he had two problems. One... He was gay, and two, he had a foot fetish. He didn't know anyone who was like him, especially, you know, you think back in the 70s and 60s when there's no internet, no way to meet people. So he said, though, once he finally got online and he found, you know, his first message board for foot fetish people, and he felt like he suddenly wasn't alone anymore, and he said that was so powerful. So I think even someone at home listening to this, maybe they don't have an adult diaper fetish. Maybe they have a different fetish that people just do not understand, hopefully they're, they're thinking, oh, maybe one, I should go to a message board or I should look for other people like me. But two, just knowing that you aren't the only one, I think that's a huge, huge um, confidence booster. It's interesting because when Zana came in here, she was doing Periscope. Yeah. And which is, for those of you that don't know, this live streaming thing where you can interact with people and yeah. she's been going on there and doing these sort of ask me anything as a sex doctor and professor and she said the question that people most often ask her and she's inundated with it is this is you know what I do this is my kink this is what I'm interested in am I normal am I normal am I normal yeah it's such a human question I think we're all so worried that we are different or you know corrupt in some way, especially sexually, because we're so fucked up about sex in this country. We don't talk about it ever. So of course you don't think that you're okay. Of course you think everything you like is weird, and that people are going to reject you. No, well, and it's, I mean, it's, it's such a human question, but it's also such a sad question because what's so fucking great about being normal? I mean, amen. what's so great about it? Like yeah. what is, what person ever on their deathbed was like, God, I wish I was more normal. Like, God, I wish, like nobody that we talk about in high esteem was normal. You know, no, no, nobody that we talk about or admire or that we have posters of on classroom walls was normal. Yeah. I want a poster of you on my classroom wall, Karina. It's <sighs> the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> I'll make one for you. It's fine. That's it for this episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. A big thank you to our producer and editor, Caitlin Baguki, and our audio engineer, Brad Shannon. Please let us know what you think of the show, especially if you have an idea for an episode or want to share your story. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at HuffPostPodcast. Or why not just send us an email? Our email address is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com, and some of our favorite podcasts have come from listeners like you. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app happens to be. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show and helps spread sex positivity across the land. And click those gold stars, people. 
if we get more gold stars this episode, HuffPost is going to buy us an entire room full of MeUndies. Our next show will be all about virgins and what the hell virginity even means. So trust me, you won't want to miss it. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and listen in. Bye. Bye.